The lesson this morning is from the first letter of Peter, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God, in regard to the Spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, <clears throat> faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So, Heavenly Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our teacher. May your greater glory be our supreme concern. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the closest uh, that I think and that I'm conscious of coming to death was in uh, Budley Salterton. And uh, you may not think Budley Salterton is a particularly dangerous place, those of you who know it, but it was uh, nearly my undoing. Uh, I was on a beach mission 17 or 18 uh, years ago, and at uh, the end of a quite a, a busy day, a few of us thought we'd go for an evening swim. And uh, it was getting a little dark, the, uh, the sort of sea fog was coming in, but there was a boy offshore about 50, uh, about 50 meters, and we thought, well, do we just, you know, we'll end the day with a swim. So I'm not a particularly strong swimmer, it has to be said. I was a little bit nervous, but I set off, and I have to tell you, friends, I was poetry in motion. <laughs> it was I, Michael Phelps. I was, taking, I was taking a stroke, and I was traveling what seemed, you know, tens of meters. I reached the boy... In no time at all, slightly, I have to say, proud of myself. And it was only when I turned around 
to swim back to shore that I realized uh, I was struggling. It was only when I that first stroke back to shore and found that I was going backwards that I realized uh, that it was going to be a more difficult journey on the way back than it was on the way out. Of course, I had been swimming with the tide. I'd been swimming with the current, and now I was swimming against it. And those 50 meters took much, much longer than the 50 meters out. It was much, much more of a struggle. It was tough on the way back. What kept me going, of course, was the side of the beach. There was my hope. There was safety. And, of course, the knowledge that to give up as hard as swimming was, to give up would mean being swept out to ruin. And I learned an important lesson. I should have known it, I suppose, at that age, but I learned an important lesson that, of course, it is much easier to swim with the tide than against it. There are often tides in the sea, and one should know them. Sometimes the root of life necessitates swimming against the tide. And it seems to me what Peter has been saying in chapters 3 and 4 of 1 Peter is that is what is true of swimming in the sea is, is also true in life. That it is much easier to swim with the tide of public opinion, with the tide of public practice, than it is to swim against it. Peter has been saying there's always a cost to nonconformity, particularly nonconformity that flows from doing the will of God over and above doing the will of man. Peter has been explaining that Christians should not be surprised by the hostility they may face from the world for being Christians because the Christian life is radically countercultural. The Christian life is radically countercultural. As Christians, we swim against the tide of public opinion and public practice. And we see that, don't we, whenever we read the newspaper and we read that some, uh, a Christian has spoken out for Christ into the public forum on issues, I don't know, of uh, financial ethics or sexual ethics, whatever it might be, and the hue and cry that arises. And many of us will know that, and we'll come back to this in a moment, we'll know that personally, at a personal level, when we've spoken for Christ, when we've stood for him, when we've said something distinctively Christian, and there's been a cost to that. The room has gone silent or whatever it might be. There has been an uneasiness descend because we've stood for Christ. We've gone against the flow and we've become angular and people have found us uncomfortable and awkward. We know that. There's always a cost to nonconformity. But authentic Christian living is countercultural, says uh, Peter. All man-made cultures have this in common. They all have a tide. They all have an undercurrent created, the Bible says, by our sin, which is, you remember, always profoundly anti-God. As individuals, and of course, therefore, corporately as a society, by nature, we pull away from God. We're always moving away from Him, like the tide away from a shore. To use the language that Peter uses in verse 2, have a look down. We all, by nature, submit to our evil, sinful human desires that distance us from God, that are self-destructive and that end in eternal ruin. That's what by nature we do, rather than be obedient to the will of God. And Christians, of course, as Peter has been explaining in the opening chapters of his letter, Christians are those who have been rescued praise God, from our slavery to this sin, from this life of disobedience. Peter, do you remember, back in chapter 1, called it this empty way of life that draws us away from God, the life giver. 
into ruin. We've been rescued from slavery to our foolish selves. And we've been, to use the language of chapter 3, we've been brought back to God by the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross. We have been saved, saved from an old life for a new life. We've been saved for the life that we were made for, which is obedience to God. But we still, of course, swim, don't we, in the sea of sinful human culture. So obedience to God will always mean swimming against the tide. And that is hard work. That is costly. How do we keep going as Christians, standing for Christ, swimming against the tide sometimes of public opinion, public practice? Well, the first thing we have to do, says Peter, is fix our eyes on Jesus. Isn't that what he's saying in verses 1 and 2? Fix our eyes on Jesus who's gone before us. Therefore, says Peter, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying Jesus knew that it was better to suffer for doing what is right to suffer for doing what is the will of our all-loving, all-righteous, all-wise Heavenly Father than to be swept along by sin. Jesus always perfectly resisted sin and did the will of his Heavenly Father. Jesus knew that it was better to go God's way, though it meant swimming against the tide of popular opinion, than to capitulate and to compromise with the crowd in their sin. Jesus constantly made the conscious choice to obey God rather than man because he trusted God above man. He valued God above man. He loved God above man. And he knew that the life God had in store for him was greater than the life that our world provides or indeed that our life can withhold. Well, says Peter, arm yourself with that same mindset. Be convinced, like Jesus, that it is better to do right and to suffer than to do wrong. If it's hard living the Christian life at times, if you sometimes find that culture is pushing against you, public opinion is going against you, well, says Peter, be encouraged. Because it shows that we are not going with the tide. It shows that we are countercultural. It shows that we have broken by sin. I take it that's what Peter means when he says, he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. I think Peter is saying, if you are starting to suffer for being a Christian, if you're finding life at times tough, if you'll find you're going against the crowd, well, be encouraged. That shows, doesn't it, that you've renounced sin and you've embraced the will of God. It shows, doesn't it, that you've turned around and you're now swimming against the tide. You're now obedient to the will of God. He's not saying it shows that you're sinless, but it shows he's saying you're now swimming against the tide. God has saved you. He's turned you around, and you're, and, and you're, and you're seeking to live for him and like him. Be encouraged. As a result, you're not living the rest of your earthly life for evil desires. You're living it for the will of God. Be encouraged. Be encouraged, but don't be naive, he says in verses 3 and 4. Such countercultural living will be costly, as you swim against the tide. Peter says, you spent enough time in the past, before you were saved, 
doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. Peter is saying, when you were content to go with the flow, swim with the tide of sinful society, when you behaved just like everybody else, well, everyone was friendly. Of course they were. You weren't awkward, you weren't uncomfortable. Everyone was friendly when you shared the same goals and priorities and you cracked the same jokes and you did the same sort of things and you lived for the same goals. Everyone was friendly. But when the Lord stepped in and saved you, when you handed your reins, uh, the reins of your life back to God, when you begun that life of submitting to Christ as Lord and your loyalties changed, you begin to live differently. You begin to swim against the tide. And the onlooking world now reacts in two ways, doesn't it? Firstly, it reacts with surprise. Do you see that? They think it's strange. So there is surprise now that you're living this way. Surprise that... You know, you, you now order a soft drink rather than the extra pint of beer or whatever it is, rather than going on and getting drunk. Surprised that perhaps we don't talk about people in the office as, as we once did. Perhaps we don't gossip as we once did. Perhaps we don't speak about people with the same vitriol as we once did. People are surprised what's happened to, to John, what's happened to Jill. They don't speak like they used to. Surprised that we no longer think that enlarging our salary is the be-all and end-all in life. We don't share the same goals, have the same priorities, make the same sacrifices that we once did. People are surprised, and of course that is hard, because we're always keen, aren't we, to be thought well of us. We want people to think well of us. Uh, and it's hard when people don't. And Peter says, well, they, they might not. They might not. And one of the reasons for that is because our actions now begin to undermine the world. It is more difficult to push God out when he's clearly being manifested in the lives of believers. It makes a world that is swimming away from God uneasy. And so secondly, there is hostility. They heap abuse on you. It may not be in, in many countries around the world, of course, that hostility is physical. And we know that many Christians physically suffer for standing for the Lord Jesus. In this country, praise God at the moment, uh, we do not suffer physically for standing for Christ, but we will all, I'm sure, be aware of times when we have felt that sense of abuse for standing for Christ. Uh, perhaps a cold shouldering. Uh, perhaps being passed over for a promotion because we're not prepared to sacrifice family for the company. Perhaps the cooling of a friendship because we can no longer condone any and everything they plan to do on a Saturday night or whatever it might be. And that will be hard. That will be hard. How do we keep going? Well, first, Peter says, doesn't he, look back to Christ. Remember him who went before us, who is our example and our hope. Have the same mindset of him who thought it was better to suffer for doing what is right, the will of God, than to go with the flow. Remember, too, that Christ is our hope. Remember that great verse in 1 Peter 3, verse 18? The Lord Jesus suffered to bring us to God. The Lord Jesus has brought us to God. We are safe in his hands as we swim against the tide. It's a great encouragement, isn't it? Because the Lord Jesus brings us to God. So as we swim, we swim. We've just sung about it with the children. As we swim, we swim in his strength. He gives strength to his people whom he is saving as they swim 
against the tide. Look back to Christ. Secondly, he says, much more briefly, look forward to the day of judgment. Do you see that there in verses 5 to 7? Jesus was condemned by the world, ridiculed by the world, for going God's way, for being obedient to the will of God. And sometimes that'll be true of us. Sometimes we will be condemned. Sometimes we will be ridiculed. But that was not the final word Jesus heard. The final word Jesus heard was not one of ridicule and failure. It was not one uh, of defeat. The final verdict on Jesus' life was well done. The final verdict was vindication. The final word was well done, good and faithful servant. His end point was eternal life with his father. His end point was glorification. And Peter says here, well, if that is true of Jesus, and if we are following the Lord Jesus, and that is true of us, Jesus' future is our future. If we're ridiculed by the crowd, if people think we're making a mistake for going the way we're going, look to the future. They will have to give an account, verse 5. The Christian will live according to God in regard to his spirit, verse 6. The final words to us will not be one of ridicule and failure. It'll be ones of vindication and well done, good and faithful servant. It'll be glory. Look back to Christ. Look forward to the day of judgment. There's the beach, if you like, that we're swimming to. There's the hope that we fix our eyes on, that coming day when we will be with the Lord forever in a new heavens and a new earth. That's the day we swim towards. When it's tough, we keep our eyes on the beach. Look back to Christ, who is our example, he is our hope. He gives us strength as we swim. Look forward to the coming day of judgment. And secondly, or sorry, thirdly, look around at your new community. We're a relational people. We're made in the image of a relational God. To find ourselves at odds with our culture because of our commitment to doing the will of God will be tough. We need a community. We need human relationships and friendships to keep us going. And that is why the God who saves us out of the sinful culture of the world saves us into a new community a new culture. The church is our God-given community in which we find the support and the fellowship and the kinship that actually we were looking for when we engaged in the practices that were contrary to the will of God. Authentic Christian living is countercultural. It is also profoundly communal. That is Peter's point in verses 7 to 11, isn't it? When Christ calls us to himself, he calls us to each other. We are saved out of one community that had a had a culture, had a current away from God, but we're saved into a new community that is, has a culture and a current towards God. What should characterize this community, this church? Well, it's there in verse 8, isn't it? Love. Love is its hallmark. Love is its distinctive characteristic. Above all, Peter says, love Love each other deeply. The word deeply here speaks not so much of depth of emotion. It speaks of the depth of commitment. It speaks of earnestness and determination. It comes from a Greek word, in fact, that was sometimes used to describe athletes. Straining for the finishing line. And Peter applies the word to love rather than athletics. He's saying that same effort, that same focus, that same determination that you find in athletes should characterize the way that we love each other. Why must we love like this? Well, negatively, because such love keeps us together. 
Peter says it, it covers over a multitude of sins. He doesn't mean there that it covers them up in the sense of it, if we love like this, we'll just turn a blind eye to our sins. We'll pretend that when someone sort of sinned against us or hurt us, we'll pretend it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll pretend it didn't happen. We'll pretend it doesn't hurt. He's not saying such love ducks these issues. He's saying, no, such love bears these things. It forgives these things. It doesn't exact recompense for these things. It doesn't let sin take root and bloom into hostility and division. Rather, it commits to the other person. It commits to working through the issue with the other person as brother and sister in relationship. It doesn't let sin drive us apart. It keeps us together as family, as brothers and sisters. An issue may arise. It might need to be dealt with, but we'll deal with it as brothers and sisters. Sin won't drive us apart. We commit to bearing with it rather than exacting revenge. That takes, says Peter, determined love. It takes Christian love, love that is motivated, empowered, and shaped by the cross of Jesus. One uh, writer uh, put it like this. This love, Christian love, is not about liking people. It's not about romantic affection. It is something more than cultural niceness. It is deeper than being respectful or mannerly. This love finds its motivation, its hope, its direction at the cross of Jesus Christ. It is active, persevering, tender, understanding, forgiving, compassionate, and self-sacrificing love. That is Christian love. That is the love we are to have towards one another because that is the love we desperately need. We're all sinners. We'll all make mistakes. We'll all upset each other at times. We all need to give and receive this gracious, forgiving love if we're to remain family. That's the love we need to enjoy true community. It's the love we crave, isn't it, in fact? Actually, it's the love we desperately want, a love that's steadfast and faithful, not based on our goodness and our performance. That's the love we're to give and to receive. It is, in short, it's the love we ourselves have received from the Lord, isn't it? Such love keeps us together. It also keeps us going and growing as Christians. I take it that's what verses 9 to 11 are all about. A community that offers hospitality, a community that serves one another with the gifts that we ourselves have been given. The question is, how do we cultivate such love? How do we cultivate such love for one another? And the first thing to say is, well, friends, by nature we can't. We can't love like this. Such self-sacrificial, self-humbling, other person-serving love is not natural for us. But praise God, we are loved. We have been loved by a God who does love like this. Who has loved us like this. Our sins have been covered and we have been served by the Lord Jesus Christ who has brought us back to God and forgiven our sin and made us family, adopted brothers and sisters. And he now, by his Spirit, indwells us, and he begins to empower us to love like this. And if we're to love one another with this sort of love, verse 8 kind of love, we need to remember two things. First, we must know ourselves to be those whom Christ loves like that. We won't love in a verse 8 kind of way unless we know that we have been loved in a verse 8 kind of way by the Lord Jesus. If we find others difficult to love at times when they sin against us in small ways, when we're tempted to give way to bitterness and ill temper, when we're tempted to withdraw, when we feel like we've been wronged, then we need to refocus on Christ and to love, and the love that we have received from him. 
Christ's love for us, brothers and sisters, was such that though we were his mortal enemies, though we showed him none of the honor and the respect and the worship that he was due, though we did not delight in him but wanted him dead, excluding him from our lives, nailing him to the cross, though these were our sinful attitudes towards him, yet he loved us so deeply that he came to us and he bled and he died at our hands to rescue, heal, restore, forgive us, as the great hymn puts it. He didn't just cover our sin, he carried them away. He took them upon himself that we might be reconciled to God. Now, friends, that is the depth of love that Christ has lavished upon us. And if we have tasted that love, if we rejoice in it, if we've been freed by it, then that will motivate us to love others in that way. That is the love we have received, and this is the love that God is working in us by His Spirit. The more we rejoice and we know ourselves to be recipients of God's gracious love, the more we'll be equipped and empowered to love others that same way. We must know ourselves to be those whom Christ loves like that, and we must know others to be those whom Christ loves like that. If we remember that Christ loves the brother or sister we're struggling to love in that same way, then that will help us to love them as well, won't it? We must learn to see others as those for whom Christ died. If Christ has died to forgive them their sin and to reconcile them to himself and to us, then we must not let their sin separate us. That would be to work against the work of the cross. If Christ died to reconcile us, how could we allow frustrations and petty disagreements to divide us? If the person we've fallen out with is so valuable to God that he should send his son to die for them, well, should we not value them a little too and work at our relationship and be reconciled to them? We must learn to see others as those for whom Christ has died. We must learn to see others as those in whom Christ lives. If we would remember that the brother or sister we're speaking to is someone in whom the Lord dwells by his spirit, will that not affect the way we relate to them? Especially if we're disagreeing or if we're finding them difficult. Finally, we must learn to see others as those in whom Christ will one day reign fully. We must relate to others with their end point in mind. One day, the brother or sister that we feel wronged by, that we're struggling with, one day they'll be perfected. They will be the finished article. They will shine like the sun. The sanctifying work of the Spirit will be complete, and we will rejoice to see them on that day. We should draw the future into our present relationships. We should relate to each other on the basis of what one day we will all be. Sin-free, glorified. Indeed, we should commit to helping each other become what we will one day be. Counter, uh, authentic Christian living, says Peter, is countercultural and it is communal. When the going gets tough, don't give up, says Peter, go on. We look back. We look back to Christ and we arm ourselves with his attitude, determined to walk his road, to suffer if necessary for doing God's will, because we know that it is the road of life. Jesus' life was vindicated, he was glorified, and if we follow him, then his future is our future. So we look back, we look forward, and we look around. We're not swimming against the tidal lane. God has graciously given us each other a new community in which we experience his love and in which we share his love 
with one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words from the Apostle Peter. We thank you for their realism. We do know that it is at times hard to live the Christian life, to swim against the tide of public, uh, sinful public opinion and practice. Father, we do pray you'd help us to arm ourselves with the same attitude of Christ, that it is better to suffer if necessary for doing what is right than to, to sin. Pray that the Lord Jesus would give us uh, his strength as we do that. Pray that we would look to him and rejoice in the salvation that he has won for us and in the strength that he provides as we uh, submit to him and go his way. Pray that you'd help us be family, brothers and sisters to one another as we swim against the tide. Help us to love one another deeply. Help us to bear with one another as those who have received gracious love from the Lord. Help us to be those who reflect that gracious love to one another. In all things, may the Lord Jesus be glorified amongst us. In his name, amen.